Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. You can learn more at www.mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be mother and pediatrician Gwyneth Spader of North Carolina to reveal the type of time parents can spend with their children that makes the biggest difference in their lives. And we are recording from high atop the campus of the University of Dallas uh, today, which is splendid. All three of us are in the same room. So, Chris, what makes this such an important topic for our listeners? Yeah, listeners, draw near and pay attention. Uh, I think we don't have to remind them to do that when they think about this topic, because how many of us have not worried or thought about the kind of time we spend with our children? Are we spending enough? Are we are we spending too much? Is, is that even possible? We want to do this right. We want to raise perfect little darlings, don't we? Uh, and it, it's scary. You know, the trouble with trial and error is it involves you know, trial and error. Yeah, the oldest kids end up being uh, guinea pigs. Yeah, my first son used to always say, God save the firstborns. And and he's right, because we were clueless as to what we were doing. Is that why in the Old Testament, it's often the second son that gets it right, not the first? Well, when I thought about I heard that phrase, I thought about it. You know, maybe the reason there is special treatment often afforded the firstborn (laughs) is because they often get so messed up by inexperienced parents. Uh, But nonetheless, this is an important topic. What's the right thing to do? How do we mold our children into good people? And I think about, um, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson and his 12 Rules for Life. And one of the rules, I can't remember which one, it says, don't let your kids do anything that'll make people not like them. Um, but, you know, this idea, we, we sort of like pets, we don't, we don't want unruly children that people don't like to be around because that's going to be bad for their overall mental health. And so how do we go about doing that? There's no shortage of, of books and experts and influencers to tell us what to do. But how do we know if that's right? How does the temperament of a given child and the temperament of a given parent affect what we do and the outcomes of some of the things we do? Uh, well, it's remarkable. Uh, oftentimes, the only example we had is what we had from our parents, and so that's what we're going to use. But now, what about everything in the blogosphere and on the internet telling us what we should be as parents? You know, and I wonder, I, I have two married children that have just had children, um, and I don't think they're representative maybe of everyone, but they actually spend a lot of time talking about how do we want a parent? What kind of parents are we going to be? Are we spankers or are we not spankers? <laughs> you know, are we timeout or are we not timeout? How are we going to do this thing called parenting? And it also afforded them the chance to say, what do we want to bring forward from our parents? And what do we want to hit delete on before we even get started? Oh, that's right. Uh, but we turned out so well despite the best efforts of our parents. Right? Darn near perfect, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting, though, and there's nothing that a parent enjoys more than having their adult children in retrospect um, you know, rate their parenting oh my. Uh, and critique the skills. It's rather humbling, uh, but but it's a worth it's a worthy exercise for all of you maybe would be or brand new parents. How do you want to go about doing this? Are you a great parent because you make every single soccer practice of your eight year old, or are you a terrible parent because you can't go to those? You know, every time I make it to the occasional soccer game. I noticed there's some of the dads that have never missed a practice and never missed a game. And I'm immediately taken with a little bit of guilt. Yes. And then I realize maybe it's good that I'm teaching my child that there's more important things than whether or not I attend every moment of every one of his or her activities. I don't know. I can't wait to ask our guest about that. Oh, that's a really good point, because I used to get upset when I was young that my parents wouldn't watch me what I thought was enough. But if they watched me all the time, I would think, wow, I've got some great power over my parents. (laughs) Um, You know, the idea for this episode, uh, according to Gwyneth, came from a blog she saw on a homeschooling post, even though she's not a homeschooler, and uh, it had a really good uh, analogy. And that was to greenhouses like raising children is like raising plants in greenhouses you want to protect them so they can do the best and in the analogy it talks about greenhouses have temperature control well we have to control the extremes of heat and cold in other ways for our children so that their growth is not stunted where the growth of plants would be stunted 
if we had extreme heat and cold like uh, this particular day in Dallas, Texas. But that won't be every day. Mm -hmm. And then you have to control carbon dioxide flow, you know, to make the organic molecules. Well, kids need the proper flow of ideas. And can we control that as parents? And then we got to do pest control, mm. like for plants, keeping out the things that are going to harm them, especially when they're just our tender shoots and, and haven't built up the strength. So it, it's going to be fun. But uh, one of the uh, aphorisms uh, I've used at our house with raising our kids is uh, we're trying to prepare our kids for heaven, not Harvard. And I think we're going to get some uh, good tips on how to thrive doing that from Gwyneth. Yeah, I like that. We often said, it's my job to be your parent, not your buddy. Uh, the same idea that we're trying to yes. prepare you for life. Uh, and sometimes that isn't necessarily fun. And sometimes it's right, you know, it's darn difficult for everybody involved. But like the greenhouse idea, you know, that's our job as parents. We signed up for this, and it's our, it's our solemn responsibility. And you and I, with adult children, I think we can testify that on the end of the equation, all of the work and all of the pain and suffering pays off. But it can sure be difficult when you're in the middle of trying to get those plants to grow in the greenhouse. Oh, yes, which includes changing a lot of dirty diapers. So before we go to Gwyneth, we are going to have our patented medical trivia question of the day. The category, greenhouse gases in human breath. You see, we talked about the greenhouse analogy. I see how you did that. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm trying. And if you didn't see it, well, tough. Anyway, of the many gases that keep our planet at an average temperature of about 59 degrees Fahrenheit, versus the zero degrees I am told by scientists the planet would be without these gases, the two biggest contributors to keeping our planet warm are water vapor and carbon dioxide. Both are increased when we exhale compared to when we inhale. So how many times more carbon dioxide is present in your exhaled breath than your inhaled breath? You're going to have to wait till the end of the show for the answer here on Dr. Doctor. But after the break, we'll be back with Gwyneth Spader and tips to help your kids thrive. We're back with Gwyneth Spader, pediatrician extraordinaire. She graduated from the place where we are interviewing her, University of Dallas in political philosophy. She got both her medical degree, her MD, and did her residency in pediatrics at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. After working for a while uh, seeing kids in an emergency room in Baltimore, she then transferred to Raleigh, North Carolina with her three kids and does general pediatric care there. Gwyneth, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So Gwyneth, what have you seen in your practice that made the topic of providing a greenhouse to children one that you're kind of passionate about? Yeah, I think it, um, what I started noticing over uh, my time in general practice is that what I started noticing uh, in my pediatric practice over time is that parents were spending an enormous amount of time and energy um, worrying and fretting about these micromanaging topics in the very early years and there's all these apps and there's all these ways to track exactly what your child is eating exactly what their output is exactly what their milestones are and how much they're sleeping and all of this kind of stuff and there was just this frenzy about getting that information correct where really i don't think it matters that much kids will eat what they need to eat by and large and sleep when they need to sleep and by the time parents were faced with some of the more challenging big deal discussions and, and decisions to be made older in childhood, they, they were tired and they were burned out. Mm. So they started seeding that kind of decision making to their children inappropriately early. And I felt like we needed to start having conversations about how to flip that ratio around again. Gwyneth, as a pediatrician, I'm curious, I think our listeners would be too, how often do parents ask you parenting questions is that is that Ooh, very common question yeah is that common or is that rare no it's all the time and <laughs> I, I, I take it as an honor and a huge responsibility and um, I would say probably in any given patient uh, encounter it's 20 to 50 percent of what we're doing is parenting wow. advice and then do you find that you struggle to separate your own parenting uh, from that advice? Because, you know, the question that I just detest from patients is, well, tell me what you would do if it was your daughter. And I think, oh, you got me. That's the one I didn't want to answer. That's but really but see, that's the question I love to get because yeah. I can answer that for patients. Because when yeah. they ask, what should I do? Well, you got options. Yeah. So how do you do it, Gwyneth? Well, it, I, it depends a little bit on, on what the question is. I'll, um, for my, our listeners out there, my oldest just turned 16. So... Um, um, and my, my youngest just turned five. So that's the range we're dealing with at home right now. Um, and I would say my advice has definitely changed as I've 
practically lived some of this stuff at home. Um, but I will sometimes tell them, this is what the books say, and this is what we've actually been able to do in our house. You choose. Yeah. Um, uh, but I try to be honest with them. This is what has worked for us, and this is what hasn't. Well, let's unpack that experience that you talk about a little bit. And what do you think leads parents to spending so much time and energy on all of those early childhood activities? I just think there's an enormous amount of pressure out there for parents to do things right. I mean, there, honestly, there's probably an enormous amount of pressure for all of us to do everything right. This concept that there's this correct answer, and if we just do something the right way, we yeah. have this guaranteed good outcome, um, I think has really infected the notion of parenting. And so they think if they're not researching every decision and not, oh. you know, polling their friends and talking with their doctors and looking on social media and reading the books, that, that they're not being a good parent, mm. that they're not putting enough energy and effort into it. How much of that is related to the curated lifestyles we see on the, the various you know, Facebook and other places where they think, oh, they've got this kind of life with our kids. I've got to live up to that. Yeah, I think it's huge. I think, um, you know, I, w I became a parent just as social media was starting to emerge as the, the major force it is mm -hmm. now. And I'm very grateful that I feel like at least the first few years with my son, I, it just didn't exist the way it does now. But I think that's what people see as the goal and it's in their face all the time and it's just not reality. Now across the span of your career, would you do you get a sense that this is a newer phenomenon and it's getting to, to be more common and more intense? Or do you think this has always been around and we're just paying more attention now? I think to some extent it probably has always been around. I mean, there's always been the notion of keeping up with the Joneses, but it, it just wasn't in your face the way or in your hand, literally the way it is now where, you know, how many moments a day do we see the latest news article or the latest blog post or the latest tweet? And it makes us stop for a second and think, does that match up with my family's reality? And if not, should it? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I just had a flashback thinking of my grandparents uh, when you were saying that. They were farmers in western Kentucky, and, and I remember them saying, you know, the parent's job is to try to keep the kids alive. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. And, a pretty and, low bar. Yeah, and he wasn't being philosophical. I think he was just being practical in that generation. You could lose children to simple things. As a parent, you had to keep them alive. You didn't have to worry about daycare interviews. Correct. You know, to get your child in the perfect, you know, preschool. So, so Gwyneth, it seems like today parents plan out almost every minute of their child's day, whereas when I was growing up, I don't think parents felt it was a responsibility or did that. Has there been a shift? I think there's been a shift. I think you're a little bit uh, more of an experienced parent, Tom, than I am. But I <laughs> certainly just thinking back to my childhood, I, I don't remember my parents orchestrating my entertainment the way that I feel and like. That's a good word, entertainment, <laughs> yes. It, you yeah. know, the way that there's this sense that we should be doing now or this pressure that we should be doing now. I mean, we participated in sports and they took us to sports practices mm -hmm. and, you know, the range right. for piano lessons. But short of those very defined activities, we were on our own and we were outside or we yes. were down in the basement mm. and they, they were they were around they were in the house my mom right. was a stay-at-home mom um she was always there mm. but it wasn't this constant mom what are we doing now what's the next activity um that i feel like it is it's, these days. it's almost like we we've developed sort of uh an allergic reaction to boredom Yes. That, that maybe there's some value in kids being bored. Maybe that's where their imagination comes from. But if they're hyper-scheduled and managed, they don't have a chance to get bored like we did. No, I think that's, that's really true. I think there is a lot of value to boredom. I think there's actually good data supporting that <laughs> idea um, that kids who have more free time do develop better kind of creative and imaginative skills, ah. um, and they're, they're less unhappy. I mean, I and I do try to, to talk to parents about this in my practice, that it's a good thing for your young toddler to start learning to be on his own, his or her own a little bit. And that was a mistake I certainly made as a young parent, this idea that I had to constantly be providing stimulus and, mm. and uh, enrichment and whatnot. But you know, <laughs> sit down with your cup of coffee and your book and let them see you read and they can play on the floor around you. Um, and I think it's a good thing for them to learn from an early age. Well, that's probably a good segue into this idea of 
cultural lies. But, you know, for young parents or, or soon-to-be parents, what would you say are the biggest lies in our culture about the definition of, of being a good and an effective parent? Yeah, I think the two that come to mind um, is that, first, this idea that your child's resume um, is, <laughs> is kind of the most important outcome as a parent, that you have to build this resume, usually academic, but then also with these extracurriculars from the very get-go. Um, children really don't need and shouldn't have resumes. Um, and two that, and you alluded to this already, Chris, but um, that you have to be your child's best friend to mm. be a good parent. I think it, it's almost damaging that idea because they don't need you as a friend. They need you as a parent. They have friends um, and uh, they need they need a consistent um authoritative figure, loving figure in their life. Wow. So now we're going to start talking about some of the ways that spending time makes the best difference in our kids' lives. So before asking the first question, I'm going to ask a, a meta question, and that is here on Dr. Doctor, we like to be data-driven. So is this going to be from your personal experience? Is it going to be from published studies? And if it is published studies, how do we know we can trust them? <laughs> All very good questions. Um, I think it's a, a combination of all of it. Um, some of it is very data-driven, and some of it is just common sense. Um, <laughs> which is uncommon Which is days. uncommon these days, that's right. So um, I, I, I think you hear a lot about parenting styles, and you said your, your older children spend a lot of time t talking about what kind of parents they're going to be. I don't think our parents had those conversations <laughs> no. ever. No. Um, but th there are different parenting styles that are described in the literature, and what I think makes the most sense and what we've tried to use in my family and what I try to talk about in my practice is this idea of authoritative parenting, where you are providing concrete boundaries, but there's a lot of communication between the parent and the child as to what and why those boundaries are and that you try to allow natural consequences to be kind of the teaching force behind some of the decisions that your children make. So, so I think you're moving into now, what are some of the best ways to spend time with our children, especially if we're not going to be spending all of our, yeah, all of our time, time with, with their children. Um, some of it depends on what age child you're talking okay. about, of course. So, you know, if we t if we start with the really young kids, I tell parents um, get down on the ground with it, play with them. <laughs> um, not all day, you know. As I said, have your coffee, read your book, but let them be the drivers of the imaginative play. Oftentimes it will make no sense. You'll go from being a princess <laughs> to a chef to a dragon in the span of three minutes, but that's fine. Um, read, 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 read with your kids. Not because you're laying some foundation for you know reading and academic success, although you probably are, but it's a way to kind of explore new worlds and um, new ideas with your children. You know what that reminds me of is I've been on the U University of Dallas campus here and something they 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 do here is they say they form their students imagination which reminds me of what you're talking about now with reading to our children we're forming their imaginations why is it important to form a kid's imagination it opens the world to them and um it it i, I think imagination is so critical for children because it does allow them um to think outside of themselves. Mm. And children are so naturally egocentric that I think the earlier we can introduce this notion that there's something outside their immediate sphere, the better they do. But it seems like every time we think about good and better and uh, the outcome of parenting, which I'm not sure many parents take time thinking about, I think about Tom's comment about we're preparing you for heaven and not Harvard. I mean, I wonder how much time parents spend just thinking about kind of the philosophy of their role as parents. What are you trying to accomplish? What's the definition of good? Uh, do you see parents in your practice that are clearly struggling with understanding that? I do, and I think that's actually a really great question that maybe I should try and incorporate more into my yeah. um, you know, guidance that I try to offer in the clinic. Um, most of the questions I get from parents about various parenting issues are very specific. Mm -hmm. um, they're not broad-minded, like uh. you're suggesting. How do I get my kid to do this? How do I get my kid to this place? Um, and I think it's really wise to suggest we need to look beyond step A, B, and C and, and where the ultimate goal is. Now, when you walk into an examining room to see maybe a well child visit, maybe a toddler or pre-adolescent, is there something that you see that says to you, this is going well? Uh, 
Well, yeah, I can tell you absolutely, particularly in the tween and teen set, if they put down their phone when I enter the oh. room, or even better yet, <laughs> if they don't have a phone in uh. their hands. And now, uh, more and more often, uh, for the younger kids, a tablet. Um, mm. These kids sure. travel everywhere with their own tablets. So mm. one, best case scenario, they don't have a device in their hands. And two, if they do without prompting from their parents, they put it down. <laughs> has the tablet become the new pacifier? In a way, it really absolutely has. <laughs> it absolutely has. Yeah, so the flip side of that, I guess, would, would be the obvious. But what do you see when you walk in the room that makes you think, ah, this might be a problem? Yeah, so it probably is. My answer is probably obvious. But the kid who does not even look up from the tablet uh, or the phone, the kid who even once you start talking um, refuses to disengage, I will tell them or ask them to please put that away while we're talking. Mm -hmm. um, the response I get to that can be very enlightening. Um, How often is a parent supportive of your request? Most of the time, but not always. And sometimes it's the parents themselves that I off that oh, I actually have to ask, could you put that away for a moment? Wow. And it's, yeah, I think it seems so obvious to us that that's an unhealthy way to interact with another, but it apparently is not obvious anymore. It's fascinating. Tom and I are both homeschoolers at one point or another. And I, I would always, when I walk into a room and the child had a book, I think, <laughs> homeschoolers. Yeah, right. Not an electronic thing, but actually holding paper and book and reading, and then speaking to you one-on-one -on -one and looking at you. Yeah, the eye contact is huge. This uh, You can tell, I think, very quickly whether a child of any age has any experience interacting face-to-face -face with a person. Uh, and it's yes. a, a little bit unfair for the younger kids coming out of COVID, where uh, they genuinely have not had oh, the chance sad. to develop that ability. But in the older kids, um, that's something that parents should actively be working on. So you talked about how to spend time successfully, you know, preschool age. Now, how about early elementary school what are some of the best ways parents can spend time with that age group yeah I, I encourage parents in that age group to be involved in their children's lives but not be over involved so you can be the soccer coach or you can be the room parent or you can be the faith formation teacher but you don't need to be all of them um, <laughs> but you should know who is and you should be able to you know say uh, uh, the name of the person who is interacting with your child and have some familiarity with them but the other thing I love to suggest at this age is that parents and this will look different for every family depending on the size of the family and just the realities of, of how their family life works but trying to carve out individual time with a parent uh, and yes. a child and whether that's daily or weekly or mm. monthly but that one-on-one -on -one time I find in the elementary school age group just lights a kid up uh -huh. and whether that is you know doing a puzzle after dinner together or taking a walk or running out to ice cream once a month or going to the library to pick bedtime stories for the week I mean there's numerous ways to do it but even if it's just 10 to 15 minutes where that kid knows you they have your sole attention no. it's very valuable I think this question I have may scare some listeners but I'm gonna ask it but I'll tell you my answer first <laughs> My wife and I never supported the concept of sleepovers, unless it was at our house, uh, which I, I get is kind of selfish, but that's just, that's selfish, that's parenting. But, you know, it's kind of a rite of passage for kids to do the sleepover thing. What, what are your takes on that? Yeah, um, well, I think it sounds like you and I are probably in the same <laughs> boat or, or stream of thought. Um, I have mostly very positive memories of sleepovers as mm. a child. I never had any disastrous outcomes from them, but we have not allowed them for our children. Mm. And uh, sometimes I surprise people when I, mm. you know, at least offer that information in a clinical setting. Um, but I tell them, I think the world has changed significantly um, with the advent of the internet. I think mm -hmm. it changed everything about, you know, what the potential bent risks and benefits of a sleepover are. And now the ability of children to be exposed to just devastating information in a very short period of time is ever present. Mm. And that's true at any time of day, but the ability of someone else to monitor that um, decreases dramatically after midnight. So, uh, <laughs> I, you know, right. we have always allowed and encouraged our children to participate in sleepover parties, but we will pick them up at, you know, about 11 o'clock at night and bring them home because we just uh. don't think there's much benefit past that point and the risks are, are significantly higher. So, uh, you know, we do, we have sent our older child to um, sleepaway camps as a teenager. Um, we are pretty particular about which camps he mm -hmm. participates in. We're mm -hmm. very particular 
particular about what the technology rules are at those camps and, and how they choose their counselors. So they do get some experience of being out of our house, um, but certainly not for the younger kids. Uh, Gwyneth, how, uh, between the ages of 11 and 13, my current 16-year-old twin sons and I watched 26 seasons worth of Star Trek together and talked about what was on the shows. So how can television be a force for good in parenting our children? Yeah, absolutely. I think it really can be a force for good when used properly and uh, in limited amounts of time. So we do the same thing with our family. And it's just a great springboard for a lot of discussions uh, ranging from history to politics to art to culture to sexual mm-hmm. morality like in a almost like a casual conversation type way. And sometimes we'll watch things together and just have discussions at at the end of the show or of the movie. And sometimes we think it's important enough that we'll pause right mm-hmm. there and, and talk about it right then and there. But particularly for, again, the kind of middle school, high school age group, I think it's a great way mm. um, to have some fun family time together, but also cover some important topics. But we should be clear, probably, we're not in any way suggesting that you expose your children to Star Trek because... <laughs> Um, whoa, 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 yeah. whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Unless it's, it's with a parent who can who talk can with them about... It was only one episode a night. We never did the binge watching. Lest, <laughs> lest you raise little Trekkies. Yeah. Uh, th- that's already done. <laughs> but, but it is interesting. It, it is easy to say all media is evil, and it doesn't have to be evil. To your yeah. point, yeah. It, it could be a family activity that's got, that's got value. And, and there are some great... There's great content out there. I immediately think about uh, the the show Chosen and it's oh, some wonderful gosh. opportunities to talk about some really great things. But it is TV and it is cool and it's exciting, but it doesn't have to be bad just because it's media. Yeah, I agree. So another thing on screens, and I was a little bit surprised, but I think you say that there are opportunities that video games can actually be a force for good. I know. My son, my 16-year-old, will just laugh out loud when he hears this segment of the show, I think. But, um, you know, similarly to TV shows or movies, I think in in very specific scenarios, they can be a force for the good. And I think sometimes parents struggle to connect with their, their teenagers or their early adolescents. And video games can actually be a fun activity that you can do together. Hmm. Again, it depends on the video game and the amount of time that you allow it to to go on. Um, But, you know, for a parent and a child, it can be a a kind of fun adventure. And then similarly, I've sometimes suggested it for siblings that are really struggling um, to Mm. interact in a positive way together to choose a game where they actually have to work together Ah. um, on whatever the goal is in the game um, can be a way for them to actually experience having a good time together and not just fighting and i think this is a great place to take a break before we go even deeper into some practical parenting tips to help our kids thrive in the greenhouse of our homes here on dr doctor Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and our special guest this episode, Dr. Gwyneth Spader, pediatrician extraordinaire, as Tom introduced her at the beginning. So Gwyneth, as we continue this discussion, let's talk about social media, because there's so many opinions on social media about social media. Uh, But is this an area that that time could be well spent with children? Or if not, what, what are some of the key points with this topic in general? Yes, this is something I definitely spent a significant amount of time covering in my um, tween and teen well-child visits. This is something where I think the authoritative parenting model is really helpful because I think so many parents are under the impression somehow that social media is necessary for their children Mm. once they reach a certain age. Mm. And I try to explain to them that I really just don't think that's true, Um, that you don't have to allow your child to participate in social media Mm. at any point, but certainly certainly not um, in you know middle school and, and early high school. Um, so not only can you set limits on your child's exposure to social media, you really should be the one setting those limits for your kid. And if you are going to let your child participate in um, these various social media platforms, I, I suggest a few rules. One, parents should have access to all accounts. Um, electronic devices that access these accounts should not be in bedrooms overnight. There should be a central storage place in the home where they 
go when the kids go to bed. And I have actually had to remind parents that it is possible to purchase alarm clocks that are not on telephones. <laughs> and it sounds like a joke, but I, I actually did have this conversation with a parent who insisted that their child needed their phone in their room to get up in the morning. And sure. I said, well, no, that's not actually true. Um, so <laughs> I do um, also try to... Ask parents to be cognizant of how what's the percentage of time that children are spending interacting with their peers across a media platform versus face-to-face, mm. because I think that ratio is getting uh, very skewed in the wrong direction. Um, I, I was reading a study not too long ago that suggested that only 30% of adolescents prefer talking to their friends in person oh over across texting or a social media platform, which was just stunning to me. Sure. How is that a friend? You know, we talked about, you know, the younger school-age kids and how, and this was a mystery to me as a parent, what's the best way, like a junior high, like 6th, 7th, 8th grade, what's the best way to spend time with that age child? That is a challenging age. <laughs> there is no doubt about it. It's challenging for your kid and it's challenging for you as a parent. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about possibly um, engaging over movies, TV shows, sure. video games. Um, get outside, get mm. outside with them. Um, and sometimes it can be, you know, overt exercise program, running together, riding bikes together, jogging together, walking together. Um, I've had families do Taekwondo programs together, <laughs> um, you know, hiking on the weekends. Um, if you're not a super outdoorsy type family, pick up a new hobby, whether it's cooking or sewing or uh, crossword puzzles. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of different ways that you can find to create a little niche activity that your child recognizes as something special between the two of you. Wow, that's great advice. Well, I know our listeners are wondering, Tom, so it's time that we talk about the talk. So, uh, what, what talk is that? Oh, yeah, you're right. the OB guide doctor who my kids are often thankful their dad is not because um, they've heard <laughs> what happens at your house. As you're lathering them up with, with sunscreen, I'm that's sure. Right, that's right. You know, my daughter used to say to me, please don't ask my friends if they're ovulating. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but, you know, I'm sure you encounter this a lot. How do parents or how should parents begin that talk about about intimacy about appropriate sexual relationships how do, how do you see that working when it works well yeah i think that's a great a great question an important one and and something i do um encounter as a pediatrician and um just generally speaking, I say to, to parents or friends or anyone who asks, you know, I actually think earlier is better. Mm. And I don't mean, you know, sitting them down a, in kindergarten and giving them, you know, the full uh, gamut of information. I think that's inappropriate. But um, just starting um, to give it to them in age-appropriate pieces rather than waiting until they're about to enter high school and then kind of throwing it <laughs> at them all at once. You know, even young elementary age kids and younger uh, can understand, especially if there's siblings of the opposite sex in the house, that, you know, girls' bodies are built differently than boys' bodies, and, mm. and that's just how God designed us, and mm. it's not a big deal. Um, and I encourage families to use correct terminology from the very beginning for um, how, you know, male and female bodies are designed. Um, but then I also think people should not um, be surprised at how young it really does become important to introduce these topics. I don't know that a lot of parents are aware that many girls are fully entering into puberty by age nine or 10. Sure. And so you really need to start having those conversations mm. uh, you know, by eight or nine years of age, um, just about the changes that their bodies are gonna be experiencing because even if they are not quite there yet, their friends may be, and you better believe it's being discussed at school. Now, it, you know, it's just impossible to stay away from this topic. I mean, it, because it's so current in the news lately, we've heard a lot about programs in schools that start introducing mm -hmm. gender issues and gender, specifically gender dysphoria issues to second and third graders. Hearing you talk, I think parents need to hear what you think about that. Yeah, it, it is certainly, I was just hearing something uh, this morning on the news about uh, a new issue or a new bill up in New Jersey, and I think it was second yeah. graders that they're going to mandate it, be part of the curriculum. That is very, very different than what I am suggesting, and I want to be <laughs> very clear 
clear on that. When I say introduce these ideas to young children, I'm talking about them just understanding what's good and beautiful mm. and natural about their bodies as they were built to be by God and not this idea that we need to introduce sexual overtones to that to children who are, you know, are naturally innocent about all of those issues. So I think starting from this idea that we introduce our our human bodies and the realities of our human bodies as a gift from God and, and the way we were meant to be then provides a, a platform for which to build on when they're more appropriately ready to um, appreciate, you know, human reproduction and, and human sexuality. Our um, diocese, I think, does a nice job offering programs that divide um, girls into groups that between the ages of 9 and 11 when we just con uh, cover issues of pubertal change, physical changes mm. in the menstrual cycle. And then we don't touch on reproductive um, sexuality until the older age group of 11 to 13. Um, and I've done presentations for both of those groups, but it allows them to kind of just be comfortable with who mm. they are and who they were meant to be and what, what gifts they have as that person before layering on the sexual component of it. That's really beautiful. My wife spends a lot of time talking to middle school and high school boys and girls uh, on these matters, and she will always remark that she was bombarded with questions. And I think parents probably think, because they're not asking me, they're not interested. I think they're interested. Maybe they're just not asking you. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think parents want to be someone that their children are comfortable coming to with mm. these questions. And the earlier that's just part of a conversation, the easier it's going to be. Um, and I encourage parents to get comfortable with the issue and even practice before you talk to your kids. And, you know, I think most children, um, as they're approaching puberty, will feel most comfortable initially discussing these topics with a same-sex parent. But I also strongly encourage both mom and dad to be involved as time goes on with these discussions with both their daughters and their sons so that it's just understood that this is not something to be embarrassed about. This is not something to shy away from, but this is just part of who we are as humans. Yeah, you, you bring up an interesting point, and that is boys versus girls. Do you, do you see differences in, in the struggles or the issues for parenting of adolescent and post-adolescent boys versus girls? Yes, <laughs> is the short answer. <laughs> yeah. um, I certainly see differences. Um, my only experience in my own home with teenagers so far is with my son. Um, my two younger children are girls, so I can speak more about that as they get older. But um, just in terms of what I've seen in the clinic, I think um, that girls get um, swept up into social drama a mm. lot more quickly than boys do. And that can be hugely challenging from a mental health perspective. So I think parents need to be on the lookout for that. Mm. Um, I think boys get sucked into the world of um, technology and screens much more easily than mm. girls do and um, miss out on necessary social experiences mm. because of that. They kind of hide behind their screens. They're not comfortable interacting in social settings, but they are comfortable, you know, manipulating their, their game controller. So, uh, you know, asking parents to, to put some limits on that and, and kind of give their boys a push to get out there in the real world is important. There's something that was a big part of my young childhood growing up, and that was the block party. I don't know if that's a thing anymore, but they put sawhorses at the end of the block so that no one could come in the street, and the eight houses on each side of the street, everybody would come out, we'd set up tables in the street, and we would just mingle, and it seemed natural. In other words, our parents knew the parents of our friends of the people we played with. That seemed to be common. How important is it for parents to know the parents of their kids' friends? And is that kind of relationship happening much now, or has that changed? Yeah, I think it's hugely important, but I don't think it happens in the natural, organic way that, that you remember you're describing. I also remember that, you know, we we knew everyone on our street and we knew uh, we knew we were in and out of houses and nobody thought anything of it and i don't see that happening as much now but i do think that you absolutely should know your friends parents um because that's the culture that your children are living in um, and you want to know who's forming that culture and we've tried um, again you know the last couple of years have, have been a little different because of covid but as we're emerging from that i'm encouraging people to 
to have the version of the block party to invite not only your kids friends over but bring their parents along we had a really successful party not too long ago um for for pie day march 14th where everybody brought a different pie pie. we do celebrate pie day i'm a nerd and i love sweets so it's a good combo um but yeah we had everybody bring a different pie and we just hung out and the kids had fun and the parents had fun and it was just it's a great event so you know be creative and have fun with it you know, I think we we all fundamentally want to raise great kids. And I think, you know, hopefully that we're learning that great is not necessarily uh, Harvard, to Tom's point. We really want them to grow in virtue. Uh, we want them to beat the statistics that say they're going to lose their faith when they go away to college. You know, how do parents encourage virtue in their kids that, that goes beyond the 4.0 GPA and the perfect SAT scores? Yeah, I love this question because I don't think people spend enough time thinking about it. Um, I think that first and foremost, I try and encourage people or try to advise people, encourage excellence across the board. <laughs> excellence is not limited to a report card. Mm-hmm. Um, excellence in kindness, excellence in service, excellence in physical activity. And that does not mean being the star quarterback. That just means, you know, staying healthy and being active and finding a way to kind of enjoy your physical strengths. Um, not everybody's going to be a Nobel Prize winner. Not everybody's going to be an Olympic athlete. But God put all of us here for a specific reason, and we are supposed to help our children, um, if not discover that while under our roofs, be in a position to discover that to discover that as they as they leave our homes. Um, so I, I encourage people to look for role models to present to their children. Mm. Um, they all know the holiday, or excuse me, the Hollywood celebrities. They all know the sports stars. Um, you don't you don't need to do that for them. They'll find that on their <laughs> own. But look for other role models. Look for role models in your community, in your parish, um, look for um, artists and business, business entrepreneurs and people who have excelled at what they have set out to do. And then, of course, there's always the saints um, oh. that you can look to as well. Uh, Gwyneth, one thing that's often awkward, but probably really necessary, is for opposite sex parents to interact with the, um, their children. So what are important for dads to teach their teenage daughters and for moms to teach their teenage sons? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, I think it's very important for dads to teach their daughters how they should be treated. Mm. Um, And that starts, obviously, in the home, in, uh, you know, at the entire childhood, you are treating your wife uh, as the father um, in a way that should model how you would want your daughter to be treated mm-hmm. by her future husband. Um, but take your daughter out on a date. Mm-hmm. Show her wh- how this should go. Um, and then, you know, on the flip side, moms and sons, have your son take you out on a date. <laughs> going to teach him how to do it. Oh, um, and, you know, I think these are great skills and just fun. It's a chance to have fun in a, in a, a you know, a unique special moment um, with your child's upbringing. But I think also, you know, it doesn't have to be limited to, to dating and relationships. There's no rules about who teaches what. So like, you know, my dad loves baseball. And so, you know, my very earliest memories uh, revolve around baseball. And I have, um, I, you know, and over the years, I, I, I couldn't even guess how many baseball games we've been together to and, and watch together and discussed. Um, but I, I have tried to do the same for my son. So, you know, my dad taught it to me. Now I teach it to my son. And, um, you know, we're a long suffering Baltimore Orioles fan. Uh, so it's a little painful at times, but um, it's been a really special connection for us. But I don't know a thing about football, but my husband loves football and he's teaching it to my daughters. Wow. So like, oh. it doesn't have to be, you know, just the dad to the son sure. or the, the sure. mom to the daughter. You can mix it up a little bit. I really loved what you said, though, as a father of daughters, you know, this idea, I've heard it said, teach your daughter what good affection is, because someone will, if you don't. And, you know, I'll hear people say, well, we're not a we're not a huggy, touchy family. But especially teaching young women, what is good touch? What does that feel like when someone hugs you and it's appropriate so that they can know if it's not appropriate? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and it can be a challenge, more of a challenge for some families than others, just yeah. based on their personality. But um, I think it's an important point. How do we teach our children how to have healthy relationships with members of the opposite sex? Because the internet doesn't do that. Yes, correct. <laughs> Step one, stay off the internet. Um, I think 
it's important to encourage healthy co-ed relationships, um, you know, kind of throughout childhood. Naturally, um, little girls and little boys mix together in the, you know, kind of preschool era. And then there is some separation that occurs in, in elementary school, and I think that's appropriate. But as they start to become kind of interested again in the opposite sex, encourage those friendships. Discourage early coupling. But they need uh-huh. to be comfortable hanging out with members of the opposite sex and encourage them to talk to each other Mm. that this is not just a relationship over texting or you know over whatever platform but that they actually are speaking face to face i love that my son's high school has a zero phone policy during school hours so that Mm. means at lunch they actually sit and talk to each other because there's nothing else to do um and i it's really been great to watch him form these friendships well gwyneth in the time that we have remaining help listeners understand based on your experience and expertise if there's something every parent should stop doing after listening to the show what should it be i yeah that's a great question um from from my you know narrow view as a pediatrician the thing that comes to mind is stop answering for them stop <laughs> oh, answering for them nice. Interesting. If, if they are old enough to talk they're old enough to talk to me and if i need something very specific from the parent i will ask the parent but i think teaching our children to answer for themselves to advocate for themselves mm. to be responsible for their own kind of explanation of what's going on in their life is a critical early skill and if you can teach that in a safe controlled environment like the pediatrician's office that sets them up well for um, you know, moving forward into the real world. And I have many parents who won't even let their 15, 16, or 17-year-old <laughs> talk when I'm in a room. And it's, I think it's harmful to them. And on the flip side of that, if every parent isn't doing something by now with their children, what would you recommend every parent does do because it's so beneficial? We've talked about this a little bit earlier in the show, but um, basic social skills. Basic mm-hmm. social skills. Be confident in making eye contact. Be confident in... Um, uh, you know, having a conversation with another person, um, and that often involves putting down the screens. Very good. So, last question, less than a minute left. What final words of wisdom or resources or both do you have for our listeners? I am going to borrow a phrase from one of my favorite saints, St. Saint John Paul II, um, mm. be not afraid. Uh. Be not afraid. It's okay to find parenting hard and overwhelming at times. And I'm, I'm going to go back to the baseball for a minute. One of uh, my favorite movies is A League of Their Own. And there's a great line in that movie when one of the players is upset and Tom Hanks, the manager, is is trying to you know get them out of this little funk that they're in. And, and they the player says but it's hard it's something it's so it's too hard and he says it's supposed to be hard the hard <laughs> uh, is what makes it great and i ooh. think that that is a great line the hard is what makes it great if you are finding parenting hard and challenging it probably means you care enough to be doing it right god does not make mistakes you are the right <laughs> parent for your child and have faith in that well dr gwyneth spader it has been an absolute pleasure having you I'm Dr. Doctor, and I know our listeners have already begun to benefit from your (laughs) wisdom. So thanks for joining us on Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and you know it's time for the answer to our trivia question, which today is about gas. Gas. Greenhouse Oh, I should have been more specific. Yeah, well, that's okay. (laughs) Uh, Greenhouse gases actually keep our planet warm, so a certain amount of them is uh, necessary and good. But this is greenhouse gases in the human breath. And the question was simply this. Compared to the air you inhale, how many times more carbon dioxide is in the air you exhale? Because our body, our lungs are giving off carbon dioxide. Um, And I don't know if you had an idea about this, Chris, but I thought it was a nice round number. Only 0.04% of the air we breathe in is carbon dioxide, but 4% of what we breathe out is. So that's 100 times more carbon dioxide in the breath we exhale than what we inhale. It helps plants to grow. And it's the way that we get rid of what we've already used. We have to be able to get rid of that carbon dioxide. If we can't, we actually get very sick. We actually stop breathing right. if we can't get rid of it. We die. So now we talked about how to help children live and not only live, but thrive. And Chris, I bet you have a top three takeaways from the 
discussion well, with Gwyneth. I think listening to Gwyneth, we need sort of a top 20 takeaway. All right, all it's right. Gonna be, it's going to be <laughs> tough to limit it. Um, but, you know, the first one, not necessarily in order of importance. I think this idea that we don't have to be our children's best friend. Oh, amen. You know, we're not put here to be their friends. They can have great friends uh, elsewhere, but our job is actually much, much bigger uh, than one of friendship. So when they're mad at us, it's okay. <laughs> uh, the second one is sort of this idea and, and an affirmation that the world of parenting a child has changed. And if we're comparing parenting today to our parents and our grandparents' parenting, there's one thing that we have to remember, and that's the internet. Uh, and so the, the rules are different. We can't assume the same sort of goodness and wholesomeness that maybe generations before us could. And then the last thing is, as we've talked about with some of our nutritional experts, amino acids are essential. Social media is not. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, there's no essential carbohydrate. There's no essential social media. Right. I I mean, I think Gwyneth pointed out really well, our kids are not going to die if we keep them off social media. Now, they may feel like they're going to die a painful death, (laughs) but it would, in fact, be okay, if not maybe a good thing, if we keep them away from social media, at least until they're old enough to understand it better. Oh, amen. It's so funny compared to my older children who were growing up as social media was coming out. My, my two youngest, they, they like get a, get a tick if they get anywhere near it. They have absolutely no interest in video games or social media. And, and they're the kids. I mean, homeschooling, this is one thing that happens. Would you put that darn book down? Yeah. I mean, they're reading almost too much sometimes, but it's kind of funny. You know, Gwyneth talked about social skills being the one thing that a parent could start doing. Uh, and I think about a speaker I heard once from Boston University who said she'd given graduate students the assignment of asking someone out on a date. And she said graduate students at Boston University dropped the class because it was too scary. Oh my goodness. And on that note, we'll exit this interview and thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio program and podcast hosted by Physicians of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of our show with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And you can find all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. For those who want to dive even deeper into some of these topics, check out our website for additional information and publications and information about the episode. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.